Welcome to the Grattan Podcast channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and for our final interview podcast of 2017, we're discussing the latest in housing affordability research. Unsurprisingly, housing affordability continues to remain in focus for media, politicians and researchers. In recent weeks, two papers have been released discussing regional housing supply and demand in Australia and housing accessibility for first home buyers. And since it's been at least a month or two since we discussed housing affordability on the podcast, it seemed timely to invite back two Grattan staff who have spent a great deal of time researching and discussing this area to outline and discuss the recent work. And so today I'm joined by Australian Perspectives Fellow Brendan Coates and Associate Trent Wiltshire to discuss this latest research and how it relates to Grattan's work. Welcome Trent, welcome Brendan. Hi Megan. Hi Megan. Trent, let's start with the recent paper released by the RBA, um, Housing Accessibility for First Home Buyers. Firstly, could you give us a brief outline of what the paper proposed? So this paper uh, takes a particular look at how hard it is for first home buyers or potential first home buyers to access the property market and buy their first home. So to start with, they just run over some general measures of housing affordability things that we've looked at and discussed quite a bit. And so the first one they look at is uh, the dwelling price to income ratio, which has been trending up a lot over the past few decades. So they identify it's gone from about two in the 1980s to about five currently. And that's actually a bit lower than a lot of other estimates as well. The second broad measure they use to look at uh, housing affordability is the repayments on a new home loan as a share of household disposable income. So this is for an average priced home with the buyer borrowing 80% of the home value and constant payments of interest and principal over the life of the loan. So this measure, unlike the previous one, includes the impact of interest rates and especially how interest rates have fallen over the past decades and, and recently. So look, using this measure, um, currently uh, housing affordability or repayments on a new housing loan are a bit above the average of the past 20 years but they're quite a bit higher in Victoria and New South Wales. So they estimate that repayments on a new housing loan are about 27 or 28% of household disposable income. So another way to think about housing affordability is to look at the mortgage burden or repayments over the life of the loan rather than at just the, the start of the loan. So that takes into account how much inflation or wages growth there is. So currently with inflation and wages growth quite soft, it means if this continues for a long time, a, a buyer of a property is going to face a higher uh, repayment share than they would have, say, if they bought in the 1990s when wages growth and inflation was a lot higher. So the authors um, discussed this briefly, and we've also looked at this and think this is an important way of thinking about housing affordability. So these overall measures of housing affordability are useful, but the authors then go on to develop this new measure for um, what they term first home buyer accessibility. So what measure did they use for first home buyer accessibility? So they used a similar measure to, to the repayments on a new home loan that I described earlier, but with a couple of um, extra additions. So they restricted the pool of people to potential first home buyers, which they defined as households that are renting and have a household head aged between 25 and 29. And about, so more than 60% of first home buyers come from this group of uh, people. And of these potential first-time buyers, they restrict that the median earner of this group is able to uh, make loan repayments worth 30% of their disposable household income, which is the sort of industry rule of thumb of mortgage stress, or any more than 30% is considered being under mortgage stress. 
So that's how they identified this um, potential first home buyer accessibility measure. And using that measure, what were their key findings? So their overall finding was that nationally, the median potential first home buyer could afford around 32% of all homes sold in 2016. And this is around the average of the past 20 years. But what they did find that was really interesting is that accessibility is much, much worse in Sydney. So over the past 20 years, the median potential first home buyer could generally afford to buy around 10 to 30% of homes, for, only 10 to 30% of homes for sale in Sydney. And this is currently only about 10%. So not many, not many properties for our potential first home buyers in Sydney. I think that's like a real, that's a real common theme throughout the piece. So whether using measures like price to income ratios or um, what share of income, you know, are people paying on to purchase a home? You know, if they're if they're spending eighty percent, if they've got an eighty percent LVR, um, all these things sort of show that Sydney is a real outlier in the Australian, like in the Australian context. So, and Victoria to um, a slightly lesser degree as well. Yeah. So, you know, on all these measures, housing affordability has gotten a lot worse in Sydney and Melbourne. But if you look at the other states, so Queensland, WA, South Australia, Tasmania, housing affordability hasn't really got any worse since the mid 2000s and you know you see that in the fact that prices haven't risen that much um well prices have risen but they haven't risen anywhere near as much as new south wales and victoria and then um particularly in in wa and queensland prices have actually fallen recently or at least sorry particularly in western australia because the mining boom came off um and then the last five years where we've seen the most recent house price boom has really just been focused on melbourne and sydney yeah and even this measure finds that for melbourne it's not anywhere near as bad as for Sydney. So for Melbourne, the median potential first home buyer has generally been able to afford about 30% of homes and that's stayed pretty consistent over the last few years. And that's probably because a lot of new um, cheap apartments have been built in Melbourne and also um, greenfield houses uh, on the edge of our city has been um, lots of construction there as well. So that's probably helped Melbourne uh, or helped first home buyers looking to buy in Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne's just not as supply constrained. So, you know, there's still Greenfield allowed 25Ks from the city. If you come in via the airport, you know, a lot of the, the land around there as you fly in is is vacant. So in Sydney, you're talking 60Ks from the city for a new home. Yeah, um, that, that's a good point. So they, this paper actually does a great job of looking at this distance issue. So they calculate the accessibility for potential first-home buyers by distance to um, CBD. So for Sydney, an affordable house um, is almost 60 kilometres from the CBD. Wow. And that's in suburbs such as Richmond and Camden. And an affordable apartment is about 30 k from the CBD. So that's out beyond Parramatta. Um, and so this distance actually has increased in the last few years and it's much, much higher than in uh, other capital cities. And compare that to Melbourne, where an affordable house is around 35 k from the CBD. So that's suburbs like Werribee, uh, Keysborough. And an affordable apartment is around 20 k from the CBD. So, yeah a lot closer than in Sydney. And this has increased only a little bit over the past decade or so. And I think that's what you were saying, Brendan. A lot of new houses being built, like in the north, northwest and west of Melbourne. And they're still only yeah, 20 to 25 k from the, the city centre, unlike Sydney, where the, the fringe is 50, 60, 70 kilometres away from the city centre. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting measure. And I think it demonstrates something that's often overlooked, which is the, the spatial geography of where people can afford to buy. So, you know, if yes, in Sydney, you... And to a lesser extent in Melbourne, yes, you can afford to buy. You have to be a long way out before you can afford to purchase a home. And that come, even if you can still, say, afford to purchase a certain proportion of homes in the city. And so as the urban boundary has gone moved out, then 
people are further from homes. They're further, well, so not further from homes. They're further from jobs. Mm-hmm. The commutes are longer. Can you imagine commuting 60K to the city? Like you just wouldn't do it. And, you know, previous Grattan Institute work, research has certainly suggested that, you know, once you're getting out that far, the proportion of jobs that you can reach across the city is really low. Mm-hmm. It's really strongly correlated with, say, a rise of single income earner households because it gets much harder for the, the travel costs, the travel time yeah. costs of secondary income earners become so large that you end up just not trying to have a two-income household because you literally can't because you need someone around to like look after children and so on. And you, if you were to find a job, it would be too far away from where you live. So if you included time costs in these measures of affordability, it'd probably look a lot worse than it looks here. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So another um, interesting finding was that um, first-time buyers have typically been able to afford more detached houses than apartments. Um, but recently, houses have become less affordable than apartments, and that's, and that's in all cities and regions, and that's primarily because a lot more apartments are being built over the past few years. And that's something I think worth keeping in mind when we, when we discuss, you know, that you hear this often that, you know, apartments are not being built, well, new apartments that are being supplied to the market are sort of in above average price points. They're more expensive than the average. And I'm not actually sure that that's true when you look into the sort of the research that underpins that, which essentially says, um, I'm talking particularly about a Rachel Long and others paper from Ahuri um, from earlier this year on housing supply responsiveness. And they basically say that, look, all the housing is in above average, new housing is above like above the average of the median house price and therefore it's not affordable. But what they're actually doing is looking at the local government areas in which that housing is being built. And those local government areas are often, you know, they're, they're, the housing is being built in places that have on average higher house prices than most local government areas. And that makes sense. It's the places where you want people to live. And so I think there's this push from those that um, in the affordable housing community to not have housing supply be a big part of the solution. And I want, because it, they, they don't think it's going to trickle down to those lower down the income distribution. And I think what one of the things this research shows is that, well, look, the reason why apartments are more affordable for first home buyers now is because we've built a lot of them. And it's a lot harder to build housing, like detached housing close to the city because it takes up a lot of land. There's no more space for that. All that land is used. Whereas at least with apartments, you can build up and therefore put a lot more housing where people want to live that's close to jobs. Yeah, and we've done some research that shows that these apartments are being built really right throughout Sydney, not just in the CBD, like in particularly in Melbourne and Brisbane, but sort of 10, 20, even 30 Ks out from the city, these, these two bedroom apartments, which couples and families can live in. So the authors of the RBA paper have suggested that housing accessibility has fluctuated but not experienced a trend decline. Is that correct? Yes. That's right, yep. With, a regional, that, with a regional component. With a regional component. Yeah. But is there another way to look at that research? Yeah, so as always with economic studies, um, the assumptions underlying the conclusions are very important and the authors here go through some nice work of running through some what they call sensitivity analysis. So doing different assumptions and seeing how that changes their results. And there's really some interesting uh, conclusions. So firstly, looking at the, the deposit assumption. So the authors assume that the deposit of first-time buyers remains at 20% of the purchase price. And this is pretty consistent with, uh, well, this is very consistent with some recent RBA work, which shows that the first-time first time buyer deposit has remained at around 17% over the past 15 years or so. One fact there is that a lot more first-home buyers are receiving help from family and friends to get access to the market, and that's either money to buy a deposit, um, to afford a deposit, or as to act a, as a guarantor so they can avoid uh, lenders' mortgage insurance. 
So that assumption that um, first-term buyers uh, save up 20% for a, to buy their first house is right. But in dollar terms, that amount of money has increased a lot, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Almost prohibitively so for some. Well, that's right. So the deposit to income ratio that the authors find has increased from, from about 70% to over 110% uh, over the past two decades. And another way of looking at it that we've done is that it takes about it used to be about six years of saving, about 20 years ago, for people to save a deposit for a, a median house. This has increased to 10 years over the past two decades. And that's a national number. So the number in Sydney is way bigger. Is high because <laughs> the price to income ratio for housing is high. So it's all just driven by the more the price to income ratio for housing increases, hmm. then naturally the longer it's going to take you to save a deposit when you save, you know, for a, a, a 20% or 15% of your income for a given number of years. Hmm. So when you think about accessibility um, in this way, it's probably fallen as it takes a lot longer to save for a, um, a deposit, a lot longer to build this deposit up. And over the past few years, we've seen prices grow a lot faster than, than wages. So really saving for a deposit has been very difficult, if not impossible for a lot of people. And we've seen that um, a lot of young people have missed out on buying a house because of this. So the, the authors change an assumption and um, they hold the deposit constant at 70% of household income, which it sat in sort of 20 years ago. So this means that you've got all these potential first-time buyers have a larger mortgage repayment each time because they've paid less of a deposit. So this drags down the purchasing capacity, um, as they term it, and that if using this assumption, the nationwide share of affordable dwellings uh, would have been about six percentage points lower in 2016 than... Um, what they find in an, under their main assumption. So that was about uh, 32%. So a decent fall there. And then, um, yeah, so I think due to this rising deposit hurdle, the uh, this measure of accessibility in this paper probably understates uh, the difficulty faced by first-time buyers. The other thing I think that um, that they don't see, take into account in their sort of their, their headline measure is that, and I think you touched on it before, Trent, is that, you know, we're in a world where inflation's pretty low and wages growth's pretty low. So when what that means is they're they're correct me if I'm wrong, but I th- what they're doing is essentially capturing the mortgage repayment burden at the point in time when you purchase the house, yeah. and just as a one-off, and assuming they're not capturing how that repayment burden shit changes over time. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why this is really important is because you know. Back in the late 1980s, when we did get really high interest rates, one of the things that then happened was inflation was really high, nominal wages growth was really high, and so the debt that you're taking out, what you're borrowing, stays constant in nominal dollars, and your wages and inflation mean that it shrinks a lot relative to your nominal income in a relatively short number of years. And so I think Peter Martins described this as mortgage tilt is the term. And so if you're in a world where, you know, you're likely to, you've got very little inflation, then that debt and therefore your repayments remain really large compared to your income for a lot longer. So you stay close to that 30% of, you know, spending 30% of your income on the mortgage for a a far longer period of time than what you ever would or would have in the past. Mm. So although the main measure of first-time buyer accessibility shows that accessibility uh, hasn't worsened much, except in Sydney and also Melbourne, when the high deposit hurdle uh, is considered, accessibility has worsened. So this finding aligns with our other evidence on housing affordability, particularly that home ownership rates among younger households have decreased substantially over the past few decades. 
So we've looked at census data, and that shows that uh, among 25 to 34-year-olds, in 1981, 60% of these households owned their own home. In 2016, this had fallen to 45%. And the falls um, also significant among older age groups, like 35 to 44-year-olds. But the fall is most dramatic among not just young households, but young households that don't earn much money. So among the 20 households aged 25 to 34 years with household income in the lowest 20%, their home ownership rates have fallen from over 60% in 1981 down to around 20% in 2016. So a really massive fall. And this is where I think the deposit hurdle issue that we just talked about before is, is really hitting. These households are really struggling to afford the 20% deposit to be able to uh, enter the market. And as Brendan mentioned a few times, that it's really a Sydney and Melbourne issue. So just to wrap us up on that, on that paper, what are the key takeaways? So the key takeaway is that overall Australia-wide uh, housing affordability for first-home buyers has worsened a little bit, but it's really focused in Sydney and Melbourne. Which is important to point out, that's 40% of the population yes. of Australia. So, yeah. you know, that it, it, it shows that there's a real geographic split in how you need to think about housing markets, that obviously the aggregates and the national level are really important, but the regional story is especially important. And so if you're in the part of the country where you're not experiencing this, then it might just be that, you know, and you don't think it's much of a problem. It might just be that it's simply because you're not in those areas where affordability has gotten so much worse. Mm. I think another one is the an inequality issue comes out as well. So I think the deposit hurdle, affording that deposit is really the main challenge. And for some households, that's simply not possible unless you get assistance from particularly the bank of mum and dad. And that means people that are fortunate enough to have wealthier parents are pretty, going to be more likely to be able to buy a house uh, currently and probably more so in the future. So that's a, probably a worrying trend for Australia. Well, let's move on to the paper on regional housing supply and demand in Australia, uh, recently released by Ben Phillips and Kaka Joseph from the Australian National University. Brendan, could you give us a brief outline on that one? Yeah, so this one um, certainly captured quite a lot of media attention earlier in November when it was released. Um, because the results were, you know, in a sense, um, counter to the existing narrative of, Australia, of the Australian sort of housing debate um, and in some ways, like fairly controversial. And so what they basically do is they estimate um, whether Australia has either a shortage or a surplus of housing, updating work that was previously done by the National Housing Supply Council, um, which in itself estimated back in 2011 that we had a shortage of dwellings in Australia of about 228,000. And there's been other studies by, I think, New South Wales Treasury in their intergenerational report and ANZ's done, done one as well that certainly suggests there is still a shortage of housing, housing in Australia. And what sets Phillips and Joseph apart is that what they do is they basically find that there's an oversupply of dwellings in Australia of about 164,000 homes. Now, um, that's also been picked up by a lot of commentators to suggest that supply isn't the driver of worsening affordability, and we certainly wouldn't say it's the only driver of worsening affordability. And also to say, well, look, if supplies, if there's no shortfall, then what's driving up house prices? Are we, to be frank, in the middle of an enormous investor driven interest rate driven bubble i knew you were going to say bubble you know we've been reluctant to say that term on the podcast but you know we're happy to go there now and so um what they basically do is it's a certain you know it's 
it's as much economics as it is an accounting exercise. Because what you do is you just pick a starting point. In this case, they picked 2001. And mind you, this is exactly what the National Housing Supply Council, which was set up by the former ALP government and then abolished by the coalition um, to advise the government on of the day on you know, what's happening in housing markets. What they do is they start in 2001, they assume housing the housing market's in balance at that point. Then they essentially compare the growth in new housing supply compared to the number of new housing since then. Um, and so you're sort of taking as a counterfactual, the benchmark that, you know, the market was in, in was in balance in 2001. And what when you say there's a shortage or a, a surplus in this case compared to then, you're saying that there's a surplus con- assuming that we want people to be as well housed in 2017 as what they were in 2001. Now, the big issue I think that exists in this paper is they don't measure what's called sort of like real demand for housing. They're measuring what what in the literature is called underlying demand. So that amount of demand holding everything else constant. Um, and the big flaw is it takes observed trends in housing size as a given. And so it ignores the impact that worsening, worsening affordability has had on Australians' housing choices, you know, for the exact reasons that we've just discussed. Like first for first-time buyers in particular, housing has become less affordable, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and therefore, if you assume that there's no change in Australians' housing choices, you can end up getting this surplus. So the big issue really is that these these estimates are really sensitive to average household size. So average household size has been falling in Australia. So the number of people in, uh, in each household has been falling, you know, for a hundred years. Um, you know, by the 1960s, it was about three and a half people per household. By 2000, it was down to 2.6. Now, there's lots of drives of this. You know, we've had fewer children, so you've got smaller households. You've had um, you had um, more divorce, so you had more separations, more sole person households. You had an older older population, so you have more pop- more smaller households, and therefore a smaller average household size. Then what happened in 2000? We've also got richer as well, so we've been able to afford yeah, precisely more housing per person. Yeah, so you know, like we 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 love our families, but we don't necessarily want to spend all our time hanging out with them. Less if, multi-generational family households. And less share houses as well. Mm. You know, if you mm. can afford to live alone. You do. Why you do. wouldn't you? Spoken <laughs> like a, a true share <laughs> I love my roommate. <laughs> and so what essentially happened is we thought that a lot of people thought that household size would continue to fall. And that's certainly what a lot of the ABS forecasts suggested. And then it sort of flatlined in 2000. And that was quite striking. Um, and it's basically remained at about 2.6 household, people per household ever since then. Now, but there was one big new and very much anticipated factor that emerged in around 2000, which is that house prices started to rise much faster than incomes. House price to income ratios rose quite quickly and other, asp- other measures of housing affordability start to really deteriorate about that 2000 period. And so, you know, it's only natural to expect that as housing became more expensive, you do the logical thing. You, if something becomes more expensive, you consume less of it in your sort of consumption bundle. Now you can do that in a variety of ways. You can either choose to live in a crappier house that's got like, you know, not as good fixtures and fittings. Maybe, maybe the paint's not as good. You can choose to live in a house that's not as well located. So you're living further from the city. And that's certainly what the, the RBI research that Trent was talking about before suggests. Or you can live with more people. You can have less space of your own in a household. And that is really what I think has kind of happened in the last 15 years. And it's the one factor that that Phillips and Joseph don't really take into account. And they're quite clear in the underlying paper that they don't take that into account. Um, 
And so, you know, this matters a lot. So for example, if you have average household size of 2.6 and instead you go to an average household size of 2.5, that's kind of equivalent to requiring 4% more houses nationwide. So we've got roughly 10, 10 million homes. So it's kind of equivalent to needing 400,000 new homes. And so you can easily go, imagine going from a, a reported surplus of 164,000 dwellings, which is what Phillips and Joseph find, to a world where you've got a shortfall of something like 230,000 dwellings. And I think what was really missing probably from the paper was just that sensitivity analysis to show um, how sensitive these housing balance estimates are. So then why does housing supply matter to housing affordability? Well, look, a lot of it is basic economic intuition. Like it is a very simple, a simple, um, you know, an insight that both supply and demand matter for any good or service. Now, what makes housing more complicated is that it's both an, it's both something that you consume, you all need shelter, but it's also something that you finance um, that's, that, so that it's an investment, that's an investment good that you use finance to purchase. So you, we tend to borrow large sums of money that we pay back over 30 years as a mortgage. And that means that housing prices are not just affected by, you know, the underlying demand and supply for homes, for shelter, but also, you know, what's happened to interest rates. So interest rates have halved. That basically doubles the purchasing power of households to spend on housing. And people like housing. They like to have more of it, like they like to have lots of anything else. And so unsurprisingly, they spend a lot more money on it. Um, there are also other factors as well. So, for example, some of the tax changes have certainly meant that in, in, investing in um, in in housing as a so as an investment asset class has certainly become more attractive since 1999 when we halved the capital gains tax discount. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, it also relates to the degree of you know how much credit growth there is in the economy. So there are lots of factors that affect housing affordability. Um, I think where like, things get a bit tricky is if you say that housing afford housing is affected, and um, that ha- if you say that housing supply isn't the thing that drove house prices high, or the sole thing that drove yeah, house prices higher, that's okay. then you end up. It's easy to make a logical step and say, well, ergo, lo- building a lot more housing won't make housing prices lower compared to the, what they would be otherwise. But that doesn't. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. If housing matters, if housing housing supply matters, and it's one of the things, even if it's not the main driver of rising prices. You can't tell me that if you don't build a lot more supply for a decade, the house prices wouldn't be lower than they would be otherwise. Yeah, so one year of building a lot more houses won't really make much of a difference just because the stock of housing is so large. And even in a big building year, it might only add potentially two to 3% to the, the stock. But if you do that for 10 years, then yeah, it's hard to say that, it's hard to see that increasing supply a lot won't make a difference to affordability. So we've talked through this before on the podcast, but you know, given we're kind of saying it's more than just housing supply, let's let's just kind of maybe go through a couple of those other things that could, with housing supply, make a difference to housing affordability. Oh, so and I gave a presentation on this to the National Housing Conference uh, last week. That's now up on the website uh, where we to basically talk through the tax side as well. So you know, there's housing supply and there's housing demand. And, you know, if you want to reduce house prices and make housing more affordable, you're going to have to do actions on both sides. Now, you know, the stuff on the supply side is to to allow more, you know, allow more housing to be built in those attractive areas, in those inner and middle ring suburbs where people want to live that are close to amenity and services and parks and schools and all the other things that we like. 
Um, on the demand side, you know, if you reform some of the, the concessional tax treatment that housing gets, particularly things like the capital gains tax discount and you abolish negative gearing, then you will make housing more affordable. Um, the same for things, say, for example, uh, re- including some value of the family home in the age pension, that pension assets test, that will help as well. But the issue is that those things alone won't be enough to make housing substantially more affordable than it is now. So for example, negative gearing in the capital gains tax discount, if you abolish negative gearing, you halve the capital gains tax discount to 25%, we think house prices might be 2% lower than otherwise. Now, you know, that's great, but compared to the house price increases that we've seen, like 70% Sydney in the last five years, it's not gonna make that big a difference. And so as Trent said, the only way in the long run to really bring down house prices compared to wherever they otherwise would go as interest rates moves and incomes move and we have a population increase and all the rest of it with migration is to build a lot more housing. And so on some of the estimates that exist, um, you know, a 10%, what is it like? If you increase um, Sydney housing supply by 10% for a decade, you might see house prices be somewhere between, on the available evidence, somewhere between 6 and 80% lower than they would be otherwise. Um, that's based on elasticities of housing demand and housing supply. Um, and there's obviously a range and quite a lot of uncertainty around those figures. But I can't think of anything else that's likely to have the same impact in the long run. And what I worry about is that we could be sitting here a decade from now. Um, we may have changed negative gearing. We may have changed because that's certainly Labor Party policy, although their policy is certainly a lot less ambitious than what we're advocating for. It's certainly a step in the right direction. But the worry is that if you don't do these things, well, where are we in a decade's time? Are we Do we see house prices continuing to rise? Because it's worth noting as well, of course, that you know in Sydney in particular, you've got a lot more housing supply than what we've had re- with recently than what we've had. As Trent said, there's been a lot more infill in those inner and middle ring suburbs. Um, but even in Sydney, which you know is running at record rates of housing supply that some people, well, most people don't think are going to quite be sustained at precisely their current levels. I'll come off a bit. That's about... 35,000 houses were built in Sydney over the past year. And compared to an average over the last decade of... Yeah, 25,000. Yeah, so it's a big jump. And a lot of that's in inner and middle ring suburbs because it's the apartments. How many people migrate to Sydney every year? If you've got 35,000 new houses being built. So the number of people coming into New South Wales as um, from abroad, so this is net overseas migration, is like 90,000 people a year at the moment. And now that's as high as it's ever been, Hmm. um, partly because, you know, we've had large levels of net overseas migration for quite a long time. But one of the things that's changed is we had a mining boom. A lot of it was going to Queensland and WA. And now it's all going to New South Wales and Victoria. Hmm. And there's fewer people leaving New South Wales as well, which has been a sort of long run thing moving to Queensland or to to WA. Mm -hmm. Well, also to Victoria, like they've been exporting their housing affordability problem to Melbourne for quite a number of years people take a job in Melbourne over one in Sydney because they can afford to buy a house. Mm. And so um, on the on our estimates, um, the amount of housing currently being built in Sydney is the minimum needed to meet the, the Greater Sydney Commission's uh, housing supply targets out to 2051. So that that's roughly 36,000 houses need to be built every year for the next 20 years to, to meet that target. And wow. that's about what has been built over the past year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the underlying demand for housing is growing. Population growth is growing. And so if when that's happening, you're going to need more housing. If you want affordability, you know, holding interest rates and everything else constant to be as good now, good then as what it is now. And obviously it's not good now. 
ideally you'd like to see housing become more affordable than it has been for over the last 15 years, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Like it's a really big social and economic issue. Um, and the challenge is without a lot more housing supply, or at least in Sydney sustaining current levels, which is hard to imagine happening when most of the new supply is on transport routes. Now, you can only build on top of train stations once. It's pretty hard to keep building more and more. They're taking the low-hanging fruit first. Mm. And so... But we do encourage like that that is a good place to start to build more higher-density housing where there's public transport. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Course. It's exactly the right place to go. There's a limit go. to how much you can do that. Yeah, as opposed to allowing more infill in those other inner, inner and middle-ring suburbs that aren't necessarily where the new transport infrastructure is going in. And Sydney's very geographically constrained, so it's hard to build on the fringe there, as we mentioned before. So the Melbourne fringe in the north and west is a lot closer than Sydney's, where the, a lot of the greenfield stuff is in the southwest, which is 50, 60, 70 k's from the, the CBD. So ultimately, I suppose I'd say housing tax reforms can help, but they're not going to be enough on their own. That was the substance of the presentation last week to the National Housing Conference. Um, policy can't or shouldn't do much about interest rates and incomes. Like these are things that, you know, well, we don't want to reduce incomes. That's a bad thing. Uh, interest rates are very hard to change given that, you know, globally we've seen the, the lowest interest rates for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, so Australia to try to move on that alone would be a very dangerous and messy thing in its own right. Um, you need to make monetary policy part of, like it's got to be not just about housing affordability. And so therefore you need a lot more supply in major cities to improve affordability in the long run. So you need to do both demand and supply, but unless you do both, and this is the message obviously for, you know, the coalition, which is saying you can do a lot on supply and we don't need to touch demand very much. You need to do both. And unless you do both, you're not going to make a big dent in the problem. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brendan and Trent. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, if you'd like to read more of Grattan's research into housing affordability, you can head to our website, grattan.edu.au, where you will find Brendan's most recent presentation, um, a number of op-eds, as well as some previous uh, podcasts. Uh, and of course, stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, research and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes to give it a rating or review. As I mentioned, this will be the last interview podcast for this year. We'll be back, of course, from mid-January to discuss our latest research as we publish it. Thanks for listening throughout 2017 and have a great holiday break. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.